the Word of God again together and open it to the book of Joshua chapter 4. Would you find Joshua 4? This morning we've come for a second time to consider that grand miracle of the crossing of the River Jordan by the Israelites as they were led by Joshua. And we looked at the miracle crossing itself and we observed in the midst of that miracle how the Lord God commanded Joshua to construct a monument of 12 stones selected from the middle of the river and then set up on the other side in the promised land of Canaan. The command to do that and the explanation of the purpose of that strange command is in verse 5. And so let's begin reading in Joshua 4, verse 5. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, And take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And then note verse 19. Let's continue reading verse 19. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan from you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for you until you passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord, your God, forever. And these are the very words of the Lord, our God. And may he bless their proclamation and bless our ears and our hearts as we listen. This morning, having already looked at the making of this memorial stone work, We want to spend our time looking at the vital connections there are between this very strange event in the life of the Old Covenant people under Joshua and the New Covenant people in Christ. And to do this, we need to think about the two prominent features of this story, aside from the miracle, the two other prominent features of this story, namely the Jordan River and the Monument of Stones. What do the Jordan River... And the monument of stones have to do with Jesus? That's the question. What is this about? And first, we want to simply think about the connection between the Jordan River, which is such a prominent feature of the Old Testament. We want to think about the connection of that river and the life of our Lord Jesus, because they are not here by accident. They're crossing at Jordan and crossing over Jordan at this point in time and at this point in terms of geography for a reason. And so let's consider the Jordan River and what the Jordan River means in God's plan of redemption. 
And the first thing we need to do is remember that, that this is not the only time in the Old Testament that the Jordan River was parted, leaving only a dry path to walk across. Two other times in the Old Testament, the Jordan River was miraculously uh, parted. Now, you're going to need your Bibles open as we go through our message this morning, and you're going to need to to look to the book of 2 Kings chapter 2 with me, 2 Kings chapter 2. We're going to see a time when the Jordan River was parted again and again. And in the portion of God's Word that we're turning to now, 2 Kings verse 6 of chapter 2, this is the time when the public ministry of the prophet Elijah was winding down and when the prophetic ministry of his successor Elisha was just starting. We, we remember Elijah and the way his ministry ended so incredibly with the chariots of fire and the whirlwind of God. But, but that's not all that happened as his ministry ended and as Elisha then rose to prominence as the prophet of God. Note 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 6. Then Elijah said to him, that is Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. That's the Jordan River. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. And when they crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You've asked for a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you don't see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And then he, Elisha, took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him. And he went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him. And he asked, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah, having stricken the water? And when he had struck the water. The water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Here we have the incredible record of a time when the prophetic ministry of Elijah was passed on to the prophet Elisha in a most spectacular way. Elijah, the prophet of God who was filled and empowered with God's Spirit, who divided the waters of the Jordan in the same way that Joshua had, who crossed the river on dry land in the same way Joshua's generation did, now passes his ministry on to Elisha. And he does the same thing. 
Elisha parts the waters of the Jordan. And here we have an incredible illustration that the very Spirit of God that, that filled Joshua and filled Elijah is now empowering Elisha. One commentator notes that here we have in the story of Elijah and Elisha and the parting, the two episodes of parting the Jordan, a recapitulation on a small scale of Israel's second exodus through Jordan, which was itself a smaller scale repetition of the first exodus through Moses at the Red Sea. The Red Sea is parted and they walk over on dry land. And then the Jordan is parted and they walk over on dry land. And then the two prophets part the Jordan twice and walk over on dry land. The Lord is doing it again. In the first exodus from Egypt... God saved his people from their slavery and from certain destruction under the hand of Pharaoh. And as Moses and his people emerged from the Red Sea, they emerged unscathed. And in that moment, a new nation was born from the ashes of bondage and pain and suffering, just as the Lord had promised Abraham. And then 40 years later, at the Jordan River under Joshua, the people of Israel, the second generation of those Israelites that came out of Egypt, the the people of Israel enter the land of promise and the Lord miraculously parts the waters for them too and they walk over on dry land and they too emerge from the waters of judgment as a new nation, a new people of God. They now are restored and redeemed and they are alive and they're ready to serve his kingdom and they're going to fight a good fight of faith on the other side as they face the Canaanites. And then 500 years later, at that same site, during the time of Israel's kings, during a time of the nation's apostasy and falling into Baal worship, and all of the immorality associated with Baal worship, the two prophets see the waters divided again. And God raises up an Elijah who hands the baton to Elisha, And they call the nation to repent. And the double parting of the Jordan symbolizes what they needed God to do to lead the sinful nation out of judgment into restoration and renewal, something only God can do. A miracle is required. Only the miracle of God's grace and saving power can restore and save and redeem and resurrect. Only by God's mercy Only by the word spoken, only by the spirit of repentance falling can people, God's own people, be restored. And so the Jordan parted now three times, showing the power and the grace and the mercy of God. And then there's something else that happens at the Jordan River in the same time as Elijah and Elisha. It's also in 2 Kings. And you can find it by turning to the fifth chapter of 2 Kings. We all know the story of Naaman. Naaman was the great commander of the army of the king of Syria. And after the double parting of the Red Sea under Elijah and Elisha, it seems that this Syrian commander by the name of Naaman contracted the deadly disease of leprosy, a horrible disease. In the course of time, this desperately sick man heard about 
God's prophet, Elisha. And beginning in 2 Kings 5, 9, we read of their encounter. Listen to what happened. 2 Kings 5, 9. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan. Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you will be clean. But Naaman was angry, and he went away, and he said this, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand all over the place and cure me. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel, the waters, those muddy waters of the Jordan? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so Naaman turned away and went in rage from the house of Elisha. But his servants came near to him and said, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said to you, wash and be clean. And so Naaman, he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. And then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and he stood before the man of God, Elisha, and he said to him, Behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but the God of Israel. What an amazing conversion. And it happened at this very peculiar site, the Jordan River. This man is a Syrian. This man is not an Israelite. He is a foreigner. He is a pagan. He is outside the company of God's people, and yet he finds salvation in the same river that God's own people found salvation, the Jordan. A former pagan encounters the grace and mercy of the omnipotent God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he emerges from the Jordan River as a new person, just like Moses' generation had done and Joshua's generation had done and the generation of Israelites under Elijah and Elisha. Now this foreigner, this man outside the covenant, hears the good news and he obeys, he repents, he walks into that Jordan, immerses himself seven times, comes out of the flood and he is new. There's something interesting about the Jordan River, isn't there? It is very significant. And that brings us to Jesus. Oh, by the way, I didn't even mention what happens next at the Jordan. Don't have time. You can read about it in 2 Kings. Somebody loses the head of an axe, which would have been very, very important in such a culture, if you lose your axe, you lose your food. And the prophet made the axe head float in the Jordan River. An amazing place where the power and the mercy and the grace of God is seen. And then we come, we come to Jesus. And now we'll make the connection between Jesus and the Jordan. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew records the inauguration, the beginning of our Lord's earthly ministry. He tells us about 
the early days when he, as now a man in his young 30s, maybe 30, begins his ministry. And he comes to the Jordan River. In Matthew 3, we, we, we meet not only Jesus, but we meet the last Old Testament prophet. And his name was John the Baptizer. It just so happens that John was preaching his message of repentance and baptizing converts at the very site, perhaps, and many scholars believe this, at the very site where Joshua had crossed over with his people. And John the baptizer went there deliberately to make a point, calling Israel back to the Lord, calling them to be baptized as a sign of their repentance, as a sign of being spared the wrath of God and emerging from the waters of judgment as a new creation. And so that's his message. He, he is decreasing. His ministry, that is, John the baptizer's ministry, is coming to an end as Jesus now will increase. And they meet. And they meet at the Jordan. And Jesus comes to John with the most incredible request. You see this in Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and, and you come to me? And Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And then in verse 16, when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now there's a lot happening here, but I want you to see some incredible connections. When Jesus and John leave the waters of the Jordan, the Spirit of God comes upon Christ explicitly. And that takes us back to creation itself. The Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep in Genesis 1. There is about to be new creation in Genesis 1. And the Spirit of God is there hovering over the deep. And the same Spirit of God as Jesus exits the waters of the Jordan comes upon Christ to signal that Jesus is bringing a new creation. And He will bring it in the power of the Spirit. And He will bring new creation out of the chaotic waters of judgment. He will bring a new people. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see why Jesus went to the Jordan to be baptized? He comes there not because he needs to repent. No, he's the perfect son of God. He comes there to make a point. He comes there to fulfill all righteousness. He came to the place, that river, that river symbolized both judgment and salvation. And he goes to the place of judgment and salvation, the place where Joshua stood and the place where John was standing as he preached. And he shows 
that to be a part of his new creation people, you must pass through death and resurrection. You see, way back in the first exodus, God's people passed through death and were raised. Forty years later, the Jordan River, God's people pass from death to resurrection. The message of Elijah and Elisha is one of God's grace and power which raises men and women from the dead into new life. And Jesus goes there to establish his own identity as the one who brings a new creation. A new creation brought out of the wreckage of the old creation, spoiled by sins. He has a new covenant people. A new mercy. A new grace. He is a new Moses. He is a new and greater Joshua. He is a new and greater prophet of God. He has the words of life. And so he goes to the Jordan River. By submitting to John's baptism, the Lord became our substitute, our representative. He will take our sins at the cross. He will be drowned in the muddy, swollen waters of God's judgment. And then on the third day, he will rise again from the dead, and everyone who believes in him will rise with him. It's been said that in this story of the baptism of Jesus by John in the Jordan, the good shepherd entered the river of judgment on behalf of his sheep. He made for them a new covenant by his atoning death, and he thereby delivered them from judgment. And all who believe in Christ emerge from the waters with him as true Israelites, made up of all nations and all classes and all people, all of them sons of Abraham, like Naaman became a son of Abraham so long ago in the days of Elisha. All who believe in Christ are new creations. And then what happens next after the baptism of Jesus is, is not accidental or incidental. After the incredible testimony of heaven that this is the one endowed with the Spirit. This is my son, my only begotten son. Listen to him. He is the author and finisher of salvation. Then Jesus goes immediately, according to Mark's gospel, and now in John, rather and in Matthew's gospel, he goes with haste into the wilderness. Matthew 4, chapter 4, Jesus is directed by that Spirit, the Spirit of God, to go into the wilderness to confront Satan, to be tested by the devil. Do you, do you see the parallels? Under Moses, they emerged from the Red Sea, going toward Canaan, fighting battles along the way with the enemies of God. Forty years later, the second generation goes to Jordan, the very border of the promised land, and they cross the river. And despite the glories of that miracle, they cross the river in God's saving grace only to fight. And they will go to Jericho, our next stop. And Jesus, 
who is reliving Israel's history. He goes to the Jordan, emerges from the waters of judgment. He is the author of a new creation, and he immediately goes to where the enemies of God are, for there is a fight to be had, the fight of faith. There is a holy war to engage. He goes into the enemy's territory. He goes into the heart of the enemy's stronghold, and he defeats the devil with his own word, and he hands the victory to his people. And that victory is ultimately seen in his body hanging dead on the cross, entombed for three days, and then raised on Sunday morning. The Jordan River, a place of judgment, a place of power, divine power, a place of mercy, a place of salvation, a place where new life begins for all who believe in the Savior. And all of this symbolized in baptism, just as we baptized Lindsay this morning. Her baptism was her Red Sea experience. The waters of judgment rose and were parted by the Savior, and she walked across on dry land, never to know the wrath of God, saved by His grace, saved by His mercy, and now to fight the good fight of faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why the Jordan River is so important. It shows us what Jesus does and who Jesus is and what he came to do to raise a new people who will be filled with the Spirit and will fight a good fight of faith until he comes to get us. But then we need to consider those 12 stones the 12 memorial stones, not only the Jordan River and the connections there are between the Jordan and you and me, but what about these memorial stones? What do those rocks have to do with Jesus and his people? Well, we need to remember that stone monument that Joshua put together and he placed it, he set it up on the east border of Jericho at that place called Gilgal. And he said those 12 stones placed there where they camped would be a memorial forever to the people of God, a sign to be observed and explained to every succeeding generation of Israelites. And we want to know what the children would want to know when they saw those stones. What do these stones mean? What do they mean? What makes it more interesting, if not more complicated, is that when you read the text of Joshua 4, there were actually two stone monuments. Maybe you've read this passage this week and you've wondered, how do we reconcile all of this? Verse 9 of Joshua 4, Joshua set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan. At the very site where the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and they stood there on dry ground, Joshua found 12 other stones and made a similar monument there. And then he made a monument on the other side at Gilgal. So there were two stone monuments. What do these stones mean? Now the 
stones in the middle, you can understand, they would be visible when the floodwaters receded. During the spring, the Jordan River would quadruple, perhaps, in size and in depth. But when the dry season came, the water would recede and those stones would emerge from the water, matching the monument on the shore at Gilgal. What do these stones mean? Those stones together represent a place, a place of remembrance and reflection and a place of faith. Israel was saved to fight just like you've been saved to fight. If the Lord wanted, He could grant us sovereignly the gift of salvation and take us to heaven immediately, but generally he doesn't do that. He saves us and he leaves us here to fight and to obey and to be changed from glory to glory, to start bearing spiritual fruit so the nations can see the transforming power of Christ. He leaves us here. But in the firefight of faith, in the fog of the holy war, our faith often grows weak. It is assailed by many enemies on the outside and even on the inside, doubts and fears and trepidations and hesitations of the human heart. And even hearts that believe in the Lord are assailed by doubt and fear. And how often we are prone to forget what God has done. Knowing that, the Lord in grace gives his people some signs, two of them, one in the river and one on the shore, stone monuments that will testify silently to the great power and mercy of God. Those stones would prompt and nourish a faith that is always under attack. Those stones would testify to God's overcoming power and his faithfulness, and his love, and his mercy. Those stones would testify to the fact that Israel did not save herself. God saved her. That Israel could not defend herself. God defended her. That Israel could not preserve herself. God would preserve her. And so those stones would nourish faith. They would encourage faith. They would support faith. And there, as they would see those stone monuments, they would remember, they would reflect, they would rejoice, they would recommit, they would respond with obedience. And we are just like them. Because there are Canaanites in our world too. Our faith is assailed. Our faith is weak. Our faith is ever under siege by the dark kingdom of evil and by our own frailties. And our Lord knows this. He knows it. In John 10, Jesus says, I know my own. He knows you. In the last book of the Bible, written to seven churches of Asia Minor, In the second chapter, 
there are those messages to the seven churches. And Jesus says, I know about you to all of the churches. I know about you. And I know your faith is weak. And I know you doubt. And I know fear sometimes overwhelms you. And so I've given you some signs to help you now, to strengthen your faith now. One commentator has asked the natural question. He says, what anointed eye, when you look at Joshua 4, what anointed eye can fail to see that these two monuments of stone help us remember the two signs and memorials that Christ has given his people to reflect upon? The two signs of the new covenant that remind us that by his power we've passed from death to life, that he is faithful, that he loves us, that he will never let us go, that we will never be ultimately defeated. The waters of baptism that we've witnessed this morning and the Lord's table that we will take a bit later in just a moment, the two signs are like those two stone monuments. They are for travelers, for journeymen for soldiers, for warriors, for athletes who are in the middle of the contest, the middle of the holy war that the Lord has called us to, and we're wounded sometimes, and we're bleeding, and we're assailed, and we need encouragement and strength, and the Lord who knows us has provided some signs for us. The two blessed sacraments of the church, the waters of baptism, and the bread and the cup of the Holy Supper. And as we think about them and as we observe them, we too reflect and we remember and we recommit and we are re-energized and we even repent and we receive strength and nourishment to fight the good fight of faith. And as we do, just as Joshua's book says in chapter 4, as we do, as the Lord, through these signs and through the preaching of his word, causes us to fear him, then all the world will know that we've been saved by the mighty hand of God. A mighty hand, an outstretched arm has saved us. And our fighting And our being nourished week by week and our hearing the word of the Lord proclaimed and making it our marching orders, all of that produces fear in our hearts, a holy fear of the Lord. And then we go serve him and that brings him glory. That points the nations to the one, the only one who can save them, Jesus Christ, the great Moses, the great Joshua, the king and the savior. And then we do the practical thing. Oh, so beautifully, so beautifully taught in Joshua 4. We tell our children what these signs mean. We instruct our children when they ask, Daddy, Mommy, why was that young lady baptized? Why was that child baptized? Mommy, Daddy, why does the cup pass me by? Why does the bread pass me by? What do these signs mean? We tell them the truth. We teach them. 
We teach our own children. We evangelize our own children. We train the next generation so that they too will fear the Lord. And the gospel will continue in this community and in this state and in this nation and around the world. And as we learn the fear of the Lord, that God will open the doors of his grace and receive more and more who will see an awesome sight of the God who has saved us. And they too will say, I repent, I believe. Like Naaman said, there is no other God than this God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I believe. That's what the stones mean. That's what the Jordan River means. Praise his name. Dear God, would you energize your people to fight and to believe, and to ever teach the truth to all who will listen. God be praised. Would you pray with me?